Thank you, Peter. Hello, City Chapel. For those of you who are familiar faces, for those of you who are new, I welcome you. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the parish elders here at City Chapel and the candidate for teaching elder. And for some of you, that's a whole lot of words that you have no idea what that means, and that is okay. Uh, if you are new, if you're visiting us here this morning, I hope you got one of these cards as you came in. If you didn't, that's okay. Please feel free to grab one on your way out. Uh, on the back is just connecting points with you where you can find out more about us. And as Peter mentioned this morning, we would love to connect with you and find out about you. If you can fill in the friendship pad, we would uh, we'd really appreciate that. And as indicated uh, on the this card and the, the graphic behind me, we are in a sermon series in First Peter that is called Sojourners in Exile. And we're continuing in our series this morning in chapter 2. And I just want to, before we continue, I want to echo something that, that Peter, Elder Peter, said last week, uh, because I think it's very important. And if you've been attending City Chapel for any length of time, uh, you may have noticed that we have, right now, a, a new face, tend to have a new face behind the pulpit most weeks. And this is done uh, for two reasons. One is very intentional, and one is out of necessity. It is necessary because we are in transition. We have launched our main teaching elder, Pastor Shane, together with his wife, Nikki. They are in Penticton planting a church, and they have touch points back with us regularly, um, but that, that transition is to that they are going, they are going to be there. And it's intentional as we make room for our elders, our eldership team, as well as for those who are wrestling with the call to preaching and to place that faithful exercise of, of coming up and, and making that allowance for them to, to wrestle with that calling on their lives. Now, this pulpit is still guarded by the elders, and we are accountable with upholding biblical truth to be proclaimed from this pulpit. And this is where our pulpit discipleship class that Peter referenced comes in. And it's of great benefit not only to those who attend and those who are learning how to divide the Word of God and how to preach the Word of God, but it's also beneficial to you uh, this morning, those who are fed by the Word of God through this class. And so, um, our text this morning as we come, I, I want to give you the reference so you can begin to find it in your Bible. Second, sorry, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1015. If you need a Bible, please put up your hand and one will be given to you. Now we're wrapping up this section under the heading, A Living Stone and a Holy People. And Noah opened this section for us several weeks ago. And next week, Jonathan will open up our next section called Submission to Authority. And so I want to encourage you, City Chapel, to be in prayer of thanksgiving for these men who are under no obligation save for the calling on their lives to serve Christ through bearing the weight of preaching to you. And so pray for them, thank God for them. Uh, be also in prayer for all of our preachers, whether seasoned or not. 
and be in prayer as well for Shane and Nikki and the church plant in Penticton, uh, for Graham and Danielle who, who went with them, and for those that they are uh, um, connecting with on the ground there. So by way of introduction, as you find your place in, in your Bible this morning, I want to just remind us of the context that we are in before we dive in. Peter's audience here that he's writing to are Messianic or Christian Jews. They're Jews that have come to know uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are dispersed in Asia Minor. These Jews were quite, all Jews were uh, quite proud of having been a chosen race. They were God's special people. They had that unique identity. And the fear that they have and that Peter is addressing is that if, if, as they've embraced this gospel, and if they did what God had commanded to preach the good news to all nations, then they would lose that special identity. And they would no longer be God's distinct people if anyone and everyone can come to salvation. And last week, Elder Peter reminded us that by adding other nations to this, they are not actually losing anything. They still remain God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. That is, Gentiles, that is, people who are not of Jewish descent, are actually grafted into this blessing. And that salvation, Paul tells us in Romans, comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So salvation is all an act of grace, The Jews don't deserve it, the Gentiles certainly don't deserve it, but by God's divine appointment of setting aside a people for himself, we have been shown much grace. And so it's in light of this context, then, that I want to get started. We are going to focus, like I said, on verses 11 and 12, but I want to just go up starting in verse 9. So hear now the reading of God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May the Lord add his own blessing to the reading of his word. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your servants desiring to bring honor and glory to you. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the truth that is contained within it. We thank you for the good news that Jesus Christ has entered the world in human form and took on the punishment that we deserve. That having satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, we are gathered here a couple millennia later, desiring to hear what it is that you require of us. The sheep that you have saved, those who you have called out of darkness into light, those who call you Abba Father, would you help us to 
boldly proclaim your excellencies, Lord. Would you make the book live to us this morning? Would you show us the words of the Holy Spirit penned by Peter and how they are written to us? How we have deviated from your righteous requirements? Would you show us our sin, our indulgence in the passions of the flesh? Would you remind us that Christ is our Savior who takes these sins away? Would you help us to live according to your word? Lord, would you make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that guides our steps as we go from this place this morning? I pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have four points for those of you who are taking notes and like to watch for those as we work through our text this morning. Our points are loved by God is number one. Loved by God. Number two is the flesh. Number three, holy conduct. And then the fourth is a good name. Loved by God, the flesh, holy conduct, a good name. So the first, loved by God. The very first word we see in our text this morning is where we derive our entire point here. These people to whom Peter is writing, he calls beloved. They are loved. Peter is expressing his love for them in a very tender pastoral tone, of course. But more than that, it is God reminding them of his love for them. God's love for his people is fixed. He loves them in spite of who they are. His love for them does not hinge upon their obedience or disobedience. God loves his children, period. Now this is an important reason, and Peter brings it up, I think, for two reasons. The first is that these Jewish Christians to whom Peter is writing are living in the midst of a Gentile world. Uh, it would be easy to presume that before the dispersion, before they were put out in Asia Minor, uh, the, these people all lived together in one nation, in, in one large area. And they were surrounded by their fellow countrymen who all worshipped the same God and held each other to account to worshipping that God. Of course, we know as we read through the Old Testament and we see that that was simply not the case, uh, that, that, that they didn't do very well at that. But it's still true that these folks now living in a dispersion are facing distinctly different struggles than their forefathers who were all fellow countrymen. These, these Jews are the obvious minority where they live. They are alienated. They no longer are walled in as a nation of God's chosen people, but they are dispersed and they live amongst pagans and atheists and idol worshippers. The world around them presses in and intentionally tries to influence them as individuals, not as one whole nation, but now individually that they might sin against God. And it is true that for whatever reason, we, we don't fully know, at least not from this text, that, that why they have chosen to settle in this region. Still, though we see that they have made their homes in these nations, and that while they are at home, they still have that sense of homelessness. 
Though they have lived here for a while, they still feel like strangers in a strange land. They feel the weight of being in these lands, but not people of these lands. There is emotional stress and and homesickness. Most major hospitals and, and psychological doctors would tell you that there are five major stressors in life. They identify these five different things. The first one is death of a loved one. The second is divorce. The third one is moving. Fourth is major illness or injury. And the fifth is job loss. And each one of these stressors boils down ultimately to one main thing. The security that we feel as human beings in normalcy. Each one of these five things removes a norm that we have come to depend on. The security that we have, that we feel, is shattered in that moment. If you think about it, someone who, that, who you love, a family member, a close friend who has been by your side is suddenly, suddenly dies, or maybe not even suddenly, just they die, that even if you've been bracing for the death that's coming, that hits you hard. That they're all of a sudden, this person who's been there for you, beside you, supporting you, loving you, is gone. The job loss, you have this security, you go, you know where your paycheck is coming from, that job is taken away, all of a sudden, that's gone. There's a a major stressor in your life. There's people in this congregation recently feeling these types of losses. And moving is something that, especially if you're in transition and you're, you're living out of suitcases for a while, the type of stress that that can place on your life. So we see this, we know this, and we see that this is the case too for, for these people at Peter's audience. This alienation, it has become normal to them. They, they're, they're used to it in a sense, but it still doesn't feel right. They're still engaging in those feelings. Now to us, of course, when we read of this here in, in Red Deer, in the 21st century, this is a picture of what our lives are like here on this earth. That we are pilgrims in this life on a journey through this earth to the celestial kingdom. This is both their present reality as well as their figurative reality as it is for us. And it is so easy then for them and for us in one moment to feel like we are completely at home, to feel like we are completely comfortable That for some of you, maybe you'll leave church this morning and you'll go home and you'll think, man, what what was Matt getting on about with those five points and those stressors and those loss of security? I am perfectly at home here as you sit in your lazy boy and pop your feet up and you turn on the TV or you open the internet and you let the world into your home and immediately you're confronted with the passions of the flesh and without even realizing it, Our conscience is on the horns of a dilemma of either feeling alienated from God or alienated from the world right there in the comfort of our own living rooms. And isn't it a comfort then that when we are bombarded with sin and even, yes, when we fall into sin, that for those who are in Christ that we can recall that God loves us? Isn't it so much easier to turn to a king when we see him as a loving father waiting to embrace us, than this dictator whom we have wronged. 
The second reason, then, that this is so important is to remind them that they haven't lost any part of their identity. As Jews, we've already said, they, they had this concern of losing their uniqueness as God's people. But God is reminding them again that His love is still with them. In fact, His love is made evident in Christ. Peter is about to urge them to do something, to implore them to action. But first, he reminds them of who they are and that they are already loved. The good works done by a child who does them for her father, knowing that he already loves her so much, are so much lovelier than the works of a child who does so, thinking that this is what she must do to earn her father's love. We also saw in in previous weeks how their family heritage is one of futility. They come from a line of people who tried to live according to Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Which says, this is God speaking, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And if you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, you know what, oh, yep, sorry, I thought I had the wrong verse here, and a holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I did put the wrong verse. (laughs) I apologize. Um... I have it written here though. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all of the peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. No, I had it right. Pardon me. That's just my nerves talking. So their, their obedience, the point is that their obedience determined their identity. Right? If you will obey, you will be my people. And so the, this is the context that they lived in and their forefathers lived in. And now Peter is saying that you already are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter starts by reminding them that they are God's beloved. They are a treasured possession. Not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done. They have a new identity in Christ And this is what compels them to obedience, not the other way around. But we need to be reminded that this is our starting point. And this is important because if we use God's love for us as unchanging as our ending point, then we will leave from here thinking that it doesn't matter what I do. If there's no good that I can do to make God love me more, and there's no bad that I can do to make him love me less, then why would I even put any effort into obedience? But if it's our starting point, because it is true that God's love for you is fixed, but since it is the starting point, this is what changes the game. That because God loves you, you're called to obedience. So City Chapel, if you come here this morning and you are worn out and feeling so alone in the world. Take great comfort this morning that if you have turned to Christ in faith and repentance, if He is your Lord, then you are dearly loved. And if you come here this morning with guilt 
having given in to the seduction of the world, and just as a spoiler, we all have, then turn to Him in repentance. Know that His love is placed upon you. And now together, let's see what He requires of us. Point number two, the flesh. Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Notice the language that Peter uses here, I urge you. As an apostle of Jesus Christ to the people of Christ, he's urging them to action. Once he has established their identity in Christ, then he issues this command. We have a tendency of humans, the reason Peter is is giving this command, we have a tendency to do what we know is wrong. There are times where we give in to what some have called a license to sin. Let me explain what that means. When we have been sinned against, or we feel alone, we feel alienated, we're tired, worn out, battered, and beaten, we feel like we deserve a break. So we justify a little sin, a little taste of forbidden fruit. As we work in our strength for righteousness, as we seek to put to death the sin and seek to do what is good and right and pure, and we look around those around us and we see that the wicked are flourishing and we ourselves are worked to the bone. And why is this fair? I'm going to justify just a little treat for myself. And we reach for the bottle and it was so good and refreshing and fun and invigorating. So we have another. Or we fill your emptiness with stuff. You shop till you drop. You buy whatever it is that your heart desires. You spruce up the car. You spend all your spare time in, out in nature or in the garage or at work. You try to escape the stress of life by partying or drinking or video games or fantasizing on websites. Each of us justifying our indulgence in a little bit of pleasure. And we use our situations as a freebie, as a license to sin. As if two wrongs would make a right. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't say it, but we feel like God owes us a gimme. Like we've been good enough, we've stored up enough good works that we can indulge in a little bit of this treat for me. Like we have been patient and waiting for Him, and now He's late to deliver on His blessings. So we take matters into our own hands and we find ways to fulfill our own desires. And at first, it's true that these things do bring us fulfillment. It's a very superficial fulfillment, but it is fulfillment nonetheless. But very quickly, we realize that we've been hooked and the sin robs us of our joy. It drives us away from God. It drives us away from the people of God, from the community that we enjoy of God's covenant people. It drives us away from His Word. It masks our desires so we forget about the goodness of God. And it pulls us away from our Savior. This is why Peter says that it wages war against your soul. 
Now, make no mistake what, what Peter means. If Christ has died for your sin, then you belong to Him. That's not up for debate. That's not what he's talking about. This isn't a, a war where the winner takes the soul of the person. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to Christ. He has ransomed you. You are His. If you are in Christ, you are His. But Satan can steal your joy. He can destroy your life. He can destroy your family. He can ruin your assurance of salvation. He can take your peace. He can take your kindness. He can stop you from serving Christ. He can keep you so busy pursuing your selfish desires that you waste your whole life and leave a wake of death and destruction behind you. We are in a war. As John Owen once said, we need to either be killing sin or sin will be killing us. There are many battles in this war, daily, hourly battles that are fought in our minds. And death will occur. You will kill sin or sin will kill you. And this happens slowly. And ground is gained or lost hour by hour, day by day, choice by choice. But you know what the remarkable thing is in all of this? If you've been losing ground, if you've been indulging in sin, if you have been wandering from Christ for years, no matter how far you've gone, if you just call out to Him, He is faithful to forgive you. Now the journey is not going to be an easy one. There will be consequences for your sin. But you don't need to walk through this on your own strength. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. We can do all things through Christ, who is our strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Yeah, there is a battle. There will be a fight. There will be dying. That sounds hard. It will be hard. But the victory belongs to Christ. His is the ultimate victory. So we can fight every day. We can abstain from the lusts of the flesh. We can pursue obedience and holiness. And then we can go to bed and rest, really rest, knowing that God is the one who will accomplish all of His holy will. So as we fight to grow in our obedience, as we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ, as we journey through this process in sanctification, we find that our conduct will be honorable. Which leads us to point number three, holy conduct. As we endeavor to live out this first command that Peter has, the second will follow. But let us not make the mistake of assuming that it is automatic. Living honorably is also part of our sanctification. That means it takes work. If Peter's first command to abstain from fleshly passions deals with our rebellion against God and against His law. The command to live honorably addresses primarily our religion. And I use that word religion in the pejorative way, in a negative sense. So let me explain. Like the Pharisees in the Old Testament, as we become better and better at killing sin, and our outward behavior now begins to look proper and tidy, 
a new temptation can arise in which we don't believe we need God's help anymore. Before, we couldn't believe that God could possibly love us. That was the struggle. That was what, we, what was so hard. But now, we're tempted to think that there's no way that he couldn't. Of course God loves me. Look at how good I am. Before, we were a vessel of God's abundant mercy that he displayed for all to see that there is no wretch beyond God's forgiveness. But now, we're the captain of team righteousness, and God is lucky to have us on our side, on his side. But Peter calls us for both those who fall towards rebellion and those who gravitate towards religion to taste and see that the Lord is good. We are all objects of his mercy. Each of us his grace bestowed upon us. We are to walk in integrity. We are not to be putting on an empty show for the world. When it comes to to sin and, and people who fall in sin, we fall in private long before we ever fall in public. Public sin is simply private sin being brought to the light. When a full glass of water is bumped, it will only spill whatever contents it had within it. If I'm carrying a glass of bitter water down here and, and somebody stands up and you bump me, I can, and, and then there's bitter water that spills out. And now I can blame you. Right? Look what you did. You spilled bitter water all over the floor. But the reason that bitter water spilt on the floor is because of what I had in my glass in the first place. And now if, if you're carrying a glass of sweet water, and you get bumped, and sweet water, of course, is what comes out. So if we're walking around looking good on the outside, like a glass of water, but we're filled with bitterness and sin and death on the inside, and something happens to bump into us, what, what do you think comes out? This is how quickly religion leads to rebellion. When someone who does all the right things they say all the right things. They look the right way. The two glasses of water look the same. But then they get bumped and bitterness pours out. And people are shocked at what, what is happening. When life hands this individual struggles, when the security of normalcy is removed and they lash out, they begin physically, verbally, or emotionally hurting those around them. They indulge in drunkenness, they turn to money, they turn to sex, they turn to power, they disengage from their family and their church family, and we think, well, how did this happen? How did they swing so far? They were doing so well. But actually, what we are seeing is what was truly contained on the inside the whole time. When a cup of bitter rebellion is bumped, that is exactly what's going to come out. But when a cup of sweet water is bumped, it's different. When life rubs against someone whose security is in Christ, how differently they respond. When someone who is so focused on the gospel has their life rocked, they know that their gospel foundation is secure. This sweetness, this real, genuine sweetness of the gospel spills out because their life is built on a gospel of hope. This is a life of humility. 
The foundation of Christ is, cannot be shaken. They know who they are in Christ. They know that they're loved in Christ. This foundation cannot be removed. It doesn't mean that they are enjoying this situation more than anybody else. It doesn't mean that they, they like what they're doing. It doesn't mean that, 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 they, that, that they like this. But they know that this is not their home. They know that they won't be here forever. That they have something more, something bigger, something far more grand to look forward to. And that something better awaits at the end of the journey when they reach that celestial kingdom. And this is what it means for us then to keep our conduct honorable. We want to show Christ and His mercy, His goodness, His grace, His glory to everyone. And He is glorified in our good deeds. And these are true good deeds, not not dead deeds, not the deeds that look good but are actually full of bitterness in true good deeds as we serve Him and uphold His truth as as His instruments and representatives on the earth. And this leads us to a good name, number four. So we have established that we should keep our good deeds honorable, but now let's look at why Peter is saying that we should do this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When they speak against you as evildoers. There are only two ways that we can understand this passage. And the first is to read it as when they speak against you, comma, as evildoers. So they are doers of evil. They're speaking against you. Of course we know that. That, that makes sense. But the other way, when they speak against you as evildoers. It's slightly more shocking that that in your good works, they're speaking that you are the evildoer. In both of them, either way you, you read it, we can be assured of one thing, that people are speaking against us, even in spite of our honorable living, in spite of our good deeds. And as we look at the words of Christ in John 15, 18, and 19, he says that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we shouldn't be surprised then by what Peter says. That as we begin to model our lives after Christ, there will be those who rise up to oppose us. That as we live honorably before God and men, as we love our children and our spouse, as we give money and time to charity, as we defend the widow and the orphan and the destitute, that those who live only for themselves might seek to bring us down. That shouldn't surprise us. We are seeing this very clearly and very publicly in many instances, but specifically I just want to touch on the abortion debate. It's all over social media. It's all on all sorts of news sites. As things get more and more heated with those who stand up for life 
and defend the voiceless and those being opposed or that were being opposed by this sharp opposition as the pro-abortionists hurl insults and pose questions like what have you ever done to even help children who were born they assume they have a lock solid argument that that pro-lifers are only supporting a fetus, and then once that, that fetus, which is actually a baby, is born, that then we're like, well, we want nothing more to do with that. That's the mother's responsibility. But actually, when they pose those questions, and then tons of, of Christians and individuals and parachurch organizations stand up and say, well, actually, here's what we've done, and this is the organization I've set up, and these are the children that we've helped, and here's the single moms that we support, and here's the children that are in foster care or children that we've seen enter into or have ourselves adopted, and thousands of examples and responses of pro-life people come to the forefront at this argument, and it's absolutely a beautiful thing. And we at City Chapel, we're, we love adoption. We're excited about adoption and what's happened, uh, that's happened here. There's three adoptions that I'm aware of. There could be even more. And we pray that there are more. We pray that there will be dozens more of adoptions that happen here. That as a community, we would support where we can. That those who are able would consider adopting and that those who are not I might consider supporting financially or emotionally, however they can. But we don't do this simply so that we can go and win arguments on social media or, or whatever on the abortion debate. That's not why we do this. We don't do this so that our, our opponents can eat crow. We do it because this is what is right, because this is what Christ has called us to, because it reflects our own reality of how God has adopted us into his family, that he has given us life, and he sustains us, and he provides for us, that he cares for the lowly and these these hopeless individuals, and he bestows upon us dignity and value and worth. That's why we do it. Atheist writer... George Orwell was more correct than he even knew, I think, when he penned the words, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. Brothers and sisters, as you live a life reflecting Christ, you can expect to be met with hardships. You can expect that others will try to represent you as evil. They did to our Lord. They crucified him on a cross. And do you know what the beautiful thing is? That each of these hard interactions, each time someone comes to oppose us, it's a gospel opportunity. Each of these moments is a chance for us to share the gospel. And as your words are backed up by the works you have done, your good name is undeniable. God may be using these instances to bring more of his sheep home. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. Reputation is very important and it's very valuable. But it isn't our name and our reputation that we're primarily concerned with. It's God's. It is the name that is above every name. 
the only name under heaven which saves, the name of Jesus Christ. May we live our lives in such a way that others must conclude this person must know the gospel. Why else would they be so resilient in the face of opposition? Why else would they be so tenacious to represent Christ, their Savior? City Chapel, as we die to self, we live humble, obedient lives. As we live humble, obedient lives, as we lay down our name, know that you are waving the banner of Christ and his name. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. And this is exactly what we read will happen. Peter says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, upon first reading, I thought that perhaps the the day of visitation was the last day. We do read, after all, that when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God would use, God might use His, pardon me, good, God might use our good deeds of the, of His saints as markers, all of them pointing to Him that He is Lord. All of creation, the works of his hands, what we call general revelation, professing the truth, the law that God has written on the hearts of all men and women, the witness of his saints around the world to the ends of the earth, so that every person might be without excuse, that the proof is absolutely undeniable. So as Jesus returns at his second advent, descending the clouds, riding a white horse, dressed for war, that everyone will give to God the glory that He is due. And some in everlasting worship and communion with Him forever, and some in everlasting torment as justice is done and God's righteous wrath is poured out on those who would profane Him. And that may be what Peter is meaning when he says this. That's what I thought at my first reading, but I think that perhaps there is a different explanation. And I'd encourage you to discuss this with your life groups this week as you, as you meet. But our context that we've been talking about is in the lives that we lead and being a witness to those around us. That as aliens and sojourners, we are called to live lives that are pleasing to God, that our actions and our words would point to Christ, and that Christ is calling His people home. And these Jews would be faithful to share the gospel with the Gentiles around them, that that those who are elect Gentiles would enter into this fold. That this day of visitation could be the day where our witness is proven effectual, as the Holy Spirit uses our lives as instruments in shaking His saints from their slumber, in calling His people home. That those who have not yet returned Uh, turned to Christ in faith and repentance, would be drawn to him as his sheep hear his voice, that they may be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that this visitation would then be the work of the Holy Spirit in that moment, drawing his saints to him. Imagine, imagine that. God calling someone out of darkness into his marvelous light because of the witness that you 
were living, that you proclaimed. And all of this happens, why? To the glory of Matt? No. What does the text say? To the glory of God. All to the glory of God. As we conclude our time this morning, I just want to recap what we have seen. Noah pointed out to us a few weeks ago this pattern that Peter uses. And he starts by reminding his Jewish audience who they are. And in the same way, he also reminds us then who we are and then what we should do in light of that identity. So you are loved. If Christ is the Lord of your life, you are his beloved. God so loved you that he sent his only son to die for you. Christ loved you that he took that full cup of wrath which was reserved for you and he exchanged that for his righteousness. The Holy Spirit dwells now within you, in you, to guide and direct you. God is personally involved in your life right now. There is no love like the love of our true God. And you will struggle. There is a reason why we don't feel at home here, and that is because it's not our home. You were made to be in communion with God, in unending worship to Him, being totally satisfied in Him. We are pilgrims in this life and we are journeying towards that goal, but we aren't there yet. Because of sin, we endure hardship. We sin and endure consequence. We are sinned against and feel the weight of injustice in this world, but God has not forgotten us. God sees and knows all. God's ways are perfect. We know that He works all things together for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. When we suffer, let us do so knowing that it is temporary, even if we suffer unto death, that there is an end. And we do so as a beloved creature of Almighty God. We have work to do. We are called to walk in obedience. We are called out of our rebellion to abstain from the passions of the flesh, this battle that we engage every hour, every day. We are called out of religion to walk humbly and honorably in our conduct, pointing to God. We do all of this so that our whole lives might be a testimony to the goodness of Jesus Christ, that we can show others what we have really tasted and what we have really seen, and that Christ really is good. He really does offer true satisfaction. We really can endure this physical life as we journey toward our eternal home with Him. We walk then in a righteousness that is not our own. We have been paid for at a cost that was given freely. God uses our lives to bring others to see Him, to taste Him, to know Him, And what a marvelous privilege that a wretch like me, a wretch like you, could receive grace and then be an instrument in God's hands to bring other sinners from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That together we can stand before the throne and declare His excellencies in worship. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. 
Lord, we thank you for the love that you have given, that we who were enemies of you have been showered in your mercy and grace. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that your name is above every name. Lord, as we go from this place, would you enable us to walk in obedience to you? Would you help us in our fight to abstain from the passions of the flesh? Would you help us to conduct ourselves honorably? Would you help us to remember that this world is not our home and our best life is still to come with you in glory? Lord, remind us when we forget of your great love for us. May our lives be markers that point to our Savior King, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.